BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about the House Select Committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. They have released a new strategy on ties with China. And and look, something that, you know, sitting in this seat, Uh, For almost two decades now, all stuff that I've said, hey, we should be stopping this. We should be addressing the massive handouts uh, that we're giving China, the screw job we're giving American workers. But finally, finally, a bipartisan committee of House members, uh, the select committee, uh, made this bipartisan finding that uh, I think uh, Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, former uh, U.S. trade representative, I think his comment that uh, giving China the most favored treatment doing this 23 years ago was a tragic mistake. It was a tragic mistake, he said. Uh, he said it's cost millions of people their jobs. It's cost communities uh, their identities. It's harmed our national security. It's done all this stuff. And you go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, welcome Welcome to reality. Welcome to what we've been talking about here on the show for all these years. I've been against this since Bill Clinton and all the Republicans. And look, it was it was bipartisan bad. It was the neoliberal agenda of we're going to liberalize trade. And it was the neocons going, hey, we can cash in by screwing those unions. It was it was the wealth classes wet dream of bad ideas for working people. Now, look, it's worked. It's worked the way it was supposed to. Made rich people a lot richer. Uh, It screwed over working people. Double bonus. But no one really thought, I I think at the time, that we would become as dependent as quickly. And the pandemic, if if you could take something positive out of the pandemic, it's the fact that people finally woke up to the reality that maybe it's a bad idea to be that dependent on someone else. I've been saying for for decades now, uh, I believe in domestic production for domestic consumption. We make the things we need. We trade for the things we can't make. I'm sorry, but, you know, we were making just about everything and trading it to the rest of the world. Whereas, 
now because of greed, and this is what this all comes down to, this is pure, unadulterated greed. Because of greed, we've destroyed what was once the most prosperous working class for uh, working class in the history of civilization. Uh, we have destroyed our productive capacity, which has made us vulnerable, not just in consumer garbage, but in military terms, which is why China is now getting a bit a bit muscular in their military advancements. Uh, but the idea here is to uh, they're saying this is a reset of our relations with communist China uh, that we're going to have to start looking at, at, at how we're going to move forward. Uh, the fact that we don't have a contingency plan for economic or financial impacts. If there's a war, we don't know what, we're, where are we going to get her cheap junk? If there actually is a war and China cuts off the spigot, where are we going to get the things that we need for our military? And I've said this a million times, you know, those, those smart bombs we've got, uh, they've got magnets in the nose of them that there's only there was only one, as I understood, one company in the U.S. that made them. And about 10 years ago, the, that company was boxed up and shipped and recreated in China. Do you think just kind of throwing this out there? Do you think in the middle of a war we're going to be able to call up that Chinese company? And go, hey, um, we kind of ran out of the things that make our smart bombs smart. Uh, can you can you send us some so we can bomb you? You know, those chips that make everything work. You know, can we have some of those? We, we kind of ran out. And look, this is all stuff. Nothing in this report is new. Let me just put it right there. Nothing in here is new. Uh, the fact that the Chinese communist government cheats at every opportunity. No. The fact that they steal our technology. Not new. In fact, I've been saying for years that U.S. corporations deserve to get ripped off. If they're dumb enough to go to a place where they don't have any intellectual property protections, they deserve to get ripped off. But this is now going, hey, we've got to do something about it. Uh, we've got to figure out how to shore up our economy, jobs for workers, because, hey, people are a little upset right now. We need to recreate our economy so communities have identities again. But more importantly, we need to make sure that our military prowess is protected, that we make all of the things we need. So congratulations on this bipartisan report. Do I have faith that it's going to it's going to magically happen? No, no, we're we're in we're in the middle of a bad divorce. We're in the middle of a bad divorce. This is this is going to be ugly. And I see this kind of almost like a declaration of war, if you will, an economic war. Because the Chinese are like, hey, we're happy. We're happy with you being stupid. Uh, this is us waking up to the reality that we're not getting out of this relationship what, what, what we need. Uh, we got what we, what we deserved because we were stupid. We said, hey, Wall Street, go make money. And they did. So when we come back, I'm going to talk with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, about what this could mean. Uh, what's in this a little bit, what this could mean, and maybe what attention, well, do you think this will get any attention in the corporate-controlled mainstream media that their profits are going to probably go down a little bit because they're going to have to pay American workers reasonable wages and they're not going to be able to exploit slave labor? Do you think this will make the, the, the evening news? Back after this.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1852. That was the day socialist leader Daniel de Leon was born in Curacao to Dutch Jewish parents. As a young man, he traveled Europe. He settled in New York City and earned a law degree from Columbia University in 1878. De Leon joined the Socialist Labor Party in 1890 and became the editor of its newspaper, The People. His book, Socialist Landmarks, consisting of a series of lectures, became wildly popular. These lectures included Reform or Revolution, What Means This Strike, The Burning Question of Trade Unionism, and Socialist Reconstruction of Society. De Leon warned of reforms under capitalism as illusory. He argued for revolutionary socialism and soon assumed leadership of the Socialist Labor Party. As a former member of the Knights of Labor, he was critical of the American labor movement, often referring to the AFL as the American separation of labor for its business unionism and refusal to organize any but the most highly skilled white craft workers. De Leon also took a strong stand against racism in the socialist movement, stating, quote, why should a truly socialist organization of whites not take in Negro members, but organize these in separate bodies? On account of outside prejudice, then the body is not truly socialist. De Leon was among the socialist leaders at the founding 1905 Conference of the Industrial Workers of the World. By 1908, he and others looked to effect social change through the Socialist Party and existing trade union movement. This put them at odds with the direct action perspective of the IWW. Many left the IWW at this point, including De Leon and socialist leader Eugene V. Debs. When he died in 1914, more than 30,000 turned out for his funeral. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I go back to the 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 quote of Bob Lighthizer. And again, as I said, you know, this, this could have been Rick Smith saying this, uh, but he said, look, the select committee made a bipartisan finding that giving China most favored nation treatment for trade 23 years ago was a tragic mistake. Uh, I have said that probably a, a gazillion times. If I got a penny for every time I said it, I'd be Elon Musk. Uh, but he also said, look, you know, as I said a moment ago, the failed policies of the past cost millions of workers their jobs, cost the country trillions of dollars in wealth, and and crippled communities put our national security at risk. And again, you know, maybe, maybe you've heard that once or twice before, especially from my next guest, who is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott Paul, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick, it's great to be with you. So this... Uh, this is good news. Look, I'm I'm trying to be very optimistic. I'm trying to say, look, you've got this select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. They've released this strategy. They've got, we've got problems. Um, are, do you share my guarded optimism? I, I share your guarded optimism. I mean, I I think that it's easy for members of Congress, or I shouldn't say easy, but I think it's easier. For members of Congress to say, "Hey, here's here's the problems. Here's some of the solutions." I, I think you and I both know navigating something through the legislative process these days uh, is incredibly difficult. In part because of the dysfunction of the you know the the House Republican leadership, uh, and so I do think that if somehow by magic you were able to get all 150 recommendations 
up to the floor for a vote. I think an overwhelming number of them should pass. I actually only disagree with a couple of the recommendations, um, which I mean, you know, if you if you were to raise 150 issues with anybody, including your spouse or your friend or I'm myself, sure I, yeah, I'm sure you're going to disagree with more than a so 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 not too bad yeah. but 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 yes to your point um i do think some of these are actionable and i do think some of them uh can get across the finish line uh you know before by, by this time next year they basically. talk about they talk about resetting preventing and building and the yeah. reset is you know basically going look uh this permanent normal trade relations which we've talked about you know wanting to repeal for a while this this kind of has to happen at some point doesn't it yeah yeah it does and you know just to refresh the 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 memories of folks who are tuning in is that this was a grant uh by the united states to china in the year 2000 of the best tariff rates possible that we give to a country that doesn't have a free trade agreement. So they're very low. They're generally between two and 3%. Um, and uh, we did this and China said, we'll get into the World Trade Organization and we'll reform our economy and we'll play by our rules and we won't cheat. And so that was the grand bargain uh, that was struck by those who supported it. You mentioned Bob Lighthizer's quote about this, who's been following this for a long time. I have a poster that is uh, perhaps worn better, worn better over time than anything else that said no blank check for China uh, that we had from rallies in 1999 and 2000. Uh, and so, as you stated correctly, Rick, you've been raising these issues forever since this happened, basically. I know I have, Ambassador Lighthizer has. You know, it's nice that a uh, committee uh, was able to come to the same conclusion. And I will just say the composition of the select committee, the Democrats, Republicans, these are serious members of Congress. I would say they're probably, they skew a little more free trade than the the House in general. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it there wasn't a, a tremendous amount of fire and brimstone on the you know on the re revoke pntr um they they recognize it as a problem they said let's set a different tariff rate and they kind of sidestepped some of the other issues but uh but but yes this was a this was an acknowledgement that we goofed that yeah. we goofed uh you know 20 23 years ago and we have to make it right and as they point out since you brought up the world trade organization and china's entrance into it you know they've pointed out that the the, the people's republic of china's economic system is incompatible uh, with the wto and it, and it it undermines our economic security that comes directly from this report and, and i don't need this report to tell me this we drove through right. communities across this country and have seen the devastation and we're seeing the web that china has has built because our system is open uh, and they have you know strategically with massive subsidies and buying up uh, our industries they've basically woven themselves into the fabric of this country yeah Yes, that, that is exactly right. And similar to, I think, the efforts that you have made, and I think to this select committee's great credit, and to Mike Gallagher, who's a Republican, who's the chair of the committee, and to Raja Krishnamurthy, who's a Democrat, who's the ranking member, he's from Illinois. Uh, the committee traveled around the country. They heard from real people. They heard from experts. They heard from business owners. They heard from farmers. Uh, and 
and they got the real on the ground feel about what was happening rather than listening to the bullet points of like lobbyists and consultants uh, in DC who just say, well, free trade is good for everybody or China's gonna eventually reform, you know? And, and that was the bill of goods that had been sold for so long. And so I like this report uh, in a lot of ways because it, it presents the evidence, sure. right? It's not just a, an assertion that, you know, like, well, this will, China will democratize if we have more trade or, or, or some unfounded assumption like that. It's very much grounded uh, in reality, which I think gives it a lot of authenticity. So let me ask you the, the, the tough question here, because, you know, I'm reading through this uh, and I'm going, this is, it sounds almost like a declaration of, of economic war, if not, if not, you know, we're militarily talking about um, we've got to be concerned about China's rise because we kind of have given them technological advancements that, the, and I'm going to say given them because we knew they were going to steal them and did nothing right. to stop them from stealing them. Um, is this a declaration of war, do you think? I don't think it's a declaration of war. I do think that it's kind of resetting as as the committee describes this. And um, it, it's a it's a big dose of reality for uh, you know folks in the United States who might continue to think, and by folks, I, I think I generally mean corporate CEOs right. and think tank folks here who generally thinks, well, we can we can still do what we were always doing in China, and there are not going to be any consequences. And, and and what makes this good is that I mean, look, we have seen some shifts over the last six or seven years, right? And, and it started in the Trump administration um with some tariffs um you know he made a bad deal with china but but some of the tariffs i think were good you know it continued in the biden administration who you know tightened the screws on a lot of this technology and, and made it clear that, it, that that he wasn't going to be obama or clinton on this um and, and so i think this is a you know this is like turbocharging some of the policy efforts and, and 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 broadening them and deepening them so it is a you know it's very carefully worded because i do know it that is there's, <laughs> no yeah, one of the things that caught my attention and it made me uh, just just to your point carefully worded uh one of the things was american investors wittingly and unwittingly support the prc's defense industry emerging technology companies and human rights abuses unwittingly i mean that's giving most people enough without saying no you had a bunch of greedy corporate ceos who saw profit over people they saw profit over this country they saw opportunity to line their pockets and they took it uh that's a yeah. very nice way of saying that well well yes and that is entirely true I think the other aspect of, of that, Rick, that's important to, to lift up is that anybody who like has a 401k or who belongs to a pension, um, you know, the pension funds, these 401ks, you know, a lot of their international investment, uh, you know, mechanisms, you know, included investments in like state-owned companies in China sure. uh, that, that helped to, to prop them up. And so I think that's the unwitting part is just how complicit you know so many people are without even knowing it yeah. um and so you know again there's light that's shed on that we're actually seeing a lot of wall street money coming out of china for the first time there there was a a massive pullout of money uh over the last couple of quarters that we have not seen 
uh, really before. And so the the you know sunlight is a tremendous uh, uh, you know, disinfectant and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, truth teller, right? So, so there's nowhere for, for a lot of this to hide. And I'm glad that we do have that light, uh, how much, shown upon. How much attention does this report get? Do you think, uh, does this, you know, I've seen some things over the last you know day or so, um, you know, what, what, what kind of attention does this get? Or is this just another long government report uh, that has some good ideas in it that gets lost in the in the fray of the the hamster wheel of the news cycle? Because, you know, we got to worry about whatever the, you know, the flash of the day is. To me, this, this is yeah. the important issue. That's, that's right. And so I, I do think, I think in the short term, it may not get as much attention as it merits. And part of that is because we have this pile up of other things that need to get done, like aid for Ukraine or dealing with, uh, you know, Israel and Gaza or and then funding government functions uh, when, when they get back in late January and early February. And and but I think where this may emerge is that you have elections in Taiwan in the middle of January. You know, if the candidate is someone who Beijing doesn't like, I think Beijing's going to get really hostile again um, and do a number of things that are going to, uh, you know, raise the eyebrows of uh, of uh, the administration and the Congress. And then I think th there'll be an opportunity to kind of like unspool a lot of these recommendations and get them moving. And this is the, the I guess this is the sad part of this committee is that, you know, th this, this committee was formed to shine a light on these issues and it has done an extraordinary job and it's also made other recommendations in the past on human rights and it will continue to make recommendations on other issue sets that we have with respect to china but it has no uh lawmaking authority and so you know th this is where like the ways and means committee has to do all the trade measures here and so this has to get on the uh, this has to get on the agenda of the ways and means committee or the financial services uh committee has to deal with the investment restrictions or the armed services committee with readiness and and so there's all sorts of other uh committees that are to get involved with this but um it's my observation that so many hearings over the last year have focused on our competition with china inside and outside of the select committee's work that there is there, there is room for this that there is room for this and so obviously as we get closer to the election, things get harder, things get more partisan. Uh, but I do think that there's an opening, and I do think that the, there's a large number of these recommendations uh, that, that 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 ought to get through the process here. Now, this this sounds to me like a long, ugly divorce. Uh, it's going to be very hard. We, we got into it pretty easily. It was a nice signing yeah. ceremony. Everybody was happy. There were pats on the back. And now we got to figure out how to untangle this horrible web of, of a broken supply chain system, a military dependent on a foreign nation, an economy that's, that's sadly way too dependent on, on the communist China. Uh, so it's going to be a long road, isn't it? Yeah, it is going to be a long road. And and it's an unprecedented road, Rick. And I think this is the thing is like we had disagreements with the Soviet Union. We had massive disagreements. We realized that that they had hostile intentions toward the United States, but we never intertwined our economies. Right. And so now we have this you know, we have so much so much of our supply chains are still vulnerable and there's so much uh, industrial production and processing that is centered in China. And in fact, they have almost a near monopoly 
uh, on some things that it is that the unwinding process is going to be very painful. It's going to be erratic. It's going to be drawn out. And and some people won't like some aspects of it initially because it may raise some costs yeah. here, here and there. Ultimately, it's going to be good for us to do that. And look, we don't need to set up an entire wall. I mean, there can still be some trade, but it's got to be reasonable. It's got to be measured. It can't be over the top and it can't expose us uh, like it has in the past when we faced you know shortages of medicines or ppe or uh or electronic components or anything like that that was just stupid yep. and and so we got it we got to get away from we we do have to get away from that as quickly as we can i had a, I had a viewer send me a, a, a video clip of josh holly basically grilling uh, one of the Biden administration uh, people over EVs and the fact that, you know, all of the components, the batteries and, you know, all the majority of EVs are made in China. And and he was hammering on this. All this stuff's made in China. Why would we want to convert our auto industry without really understanding? And my response to this person was, um, I think what the administration is trying to do is trying to build that infrastructure, trying to, to recapture our technological advance, trying to bring industries back. So yeah, Josh Hawley pointing out, pointing the finger. Yeah, things are things are bad. China controls all this stuff, but we we shouldn't be ceding it to them either. At least that's my thought. Yeah, you are 100% right. And, and whether it's through mandate or through consumer preference or just the way that, that, that things change, you know, 10 years from now, there's going to be many more people driving electric vehicles than there are right now. The only question is, who's going to make them? Yep. And so if we're not in the game, we're not going to make them. And they're going to come from China. And that's going to be a real threat to our manufacturing base in the United States. And so I think that getting ahead of this and having a plan is incredibly wise because we really screwed the pooch with so many different industries over the last couple of decades where we just said, we invented something amazing. And then it was like, oh, here, China, go make it. That's why we don't make any smartphones in this country. I mean, Apple is a genius company in so many ways, but we don't have the capacity to make a smartphone in the United States right now. Because green did us in. Yeah, that's what all of this effort is about, is so that we have the, the capability to make EVs in the United States. And yes, there's going to be a one or two year transition where there is some stuff, some of the parts, some of the materials are coming from China, just because that's literally where they're made in the world right now. But the the plan that the administration has and that we, we need to support is that as quickly as possible, it's going to be a made in USA supply chain uh, or a made in North America supply chain at the worst, but that we're going to make it here rather than depending on China. Uh, and, and that's what Senator Hawley misses here. Music to my ears, Scott, something I've been calling for for you know, almost the two decades been doing this show. It's, it's about domestic production for domestic consumption. Uh, that that my reality. But Scott, I appreciate the time as always. Uh, good stuff. I know this is something we're going to be talking about for weeks and months to come. Uh, so I look forward to that. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for lifting it up, Rick. Really appreciate it. Our good friend, Scott Paul. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. I'm going to take a quick break. Right back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. talk. 
We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So again, the report by the select committee titled Reset, Prevent, Build. A strategy to win America's economic competition with the Chinese Communist Party. And and look, there's so much that needs to be done for us to reshore manufacturing. Uh, you know, I brought up the thing with Josh Hawley, you know, abusing one of the Biden administration uh, people going, well, you know, China makes all this stuff. And you go, yeah, that's the problem. Congratulations. You have figured out what the problem is. Now, how about a solution? How about we actually do something to solve that problem instead of going, well, we're just not going to do anything. Uh, this this is a start. And I, I'm guardedly optimistic that something could happen. I'm guardedly optimistic. Uh, for our audience on Free Speech TV, thanks so much for being here. Uh, folks listening on the radio, uh, we're right back after this. Stick around. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. That was the day that 20,000 workers in the city of Fez in the North African country of Morocco went out on strike. Austerity measures had hit the country's working people hard during the 1980s. A drought had made the situation even worse. Unemployment rates for those under 21 had soared to higher than 30%. Two labor unions, the General Workers Trade Union and the Democratic Confederation of Labor, called for a general strike. Government officials agreed to meet with the unions to discuss their demands. But the government would not agree to specific wage increases. Plans for the general strike moved forward. It is estimated that more than half of the Fez workforce participated in the general strike. Large numbers of workers in other Moroccan cities also participated in the action. In Fez, bus drivers showed their solidarity by joining the strike. In response, the government attempted to keep bus service going by putting police and soldiers behind the wheel. This angered many of the young demonstrators, and some threw stones at the scab drivers. Armed forces clashed violently with the strikers. The government claimed the strikers started the violence. The protesters pointed toward the police. A fire was started at the Five Star Hotel Merendez in Fez. Other symbols of wealth, such as limousines, car dealerships, and banks were also damaged. After the 24-day strike, Moroccan officials claimed that two demonstrators had been killed. But human rights groups disputed that number and said 33 had been killed. Many more were injured. Hundreds were arrested. After the strike, the government agreed to raise wages by 15%. Many protesters were tried for their participation in the demonstrations. Some received prison sentences as long as 10 years. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. 
So the question, are we going to get an impeachment for Christmas? Will that be what the Republicans give America? They got nothing else. Uh, there are no policies. There, there's nothing to help feed the children, nothing to get homeless veterans shelter, uh, nothing to solve the debt. No, n- literally, literally nothing. There's nothing there. So the only thing I think they can give we the people for Christmas is an impeachment inquiry, not an actual impeachment. No, they don't have the evidence for that. But an, an inquiry, would that be would that be an acceptable Christmas present? And here to share some thoughts on, do we want impeachment inquiry for Christmas? That's why I've asked my good friend Sarah Burris to come talk with us. Sarah's a reporter over at Raw Story, rawstory.com, the website. Sarah, thanks for taking time for us. Hello, how are you? Uh, I'm good. So you think... Uh, Inquiry for Christmas? Would that be a, a suitable gift for the American people since clearly nothing else? Well, now that I think about it, it kind of sounds like something that would be a festivist event, you know, because there's the airing of grievances as part of the festivist. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe. maybe yeah, I'm thinking more of is. kind of like, a, you know, since Mike Johnson is a theocrat, this could be like a Hallmark kind of themed inquiry. <laughs> You know, possibly, but I feel like, you know, there's no love in in that. Yeah. And that's the thing about the Hallmark movies is you got to you gotta have love. There's got to be a kiss at the end. Oh, we're going to get kissed all right. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more than kissed uh, if they get what they want. And this is the scary part in all this. You know, this inquiry is not about, you know, Biden doing anything because they clearly have nothing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what what was the one lawyer uh, you you wrote a story on a lawyer going yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be an unfortunate affair I think was the was the quote yeah like that's the thing is that so we talked to a couple of um, Republicans on the Hill this week and they are kind of all over the place like they can't really figure out whether it's a real impeachment or not really an impeachment like there it's kind of it seems like a choose your own adventure novel you know like where the inquiry, which to me sounds like what Kevin McCarthy introduced in September, um, you know, there are half of the Republicans that we talked to who were like, no, this is this is a legitimate inquiry. Like, this is not, oh, who was it? Uh, uh, Mario Diaz-Balart was like, this, is, this isn't like those other two votes we had. This is a legitimate inquiry. Whereas <laughs> Tom Bacon was like, look, it's just an inquiry. Like, it's not, this isn't real impeachment. They don't have the votes for that. No, I mean, like... no. But here's the thing. This is why this is why words matter. And this is why having people who know what a dictionary is kind of matter. And why definitions, why definitions matter. I mean, you get the first part. And I know Republicans love the first part of every sentence. Uh, Thou shall not infringe on you know, the right to bear arms. Well-regulated militia. No, we're not going to see that. Uh, but, you know, this this impeachment, uh, impeachment inquiry, uh, not sure what that means. We'll get rid of that. So uh, this is what I think that they're they're stuck on. This is an impeachment payback retribution. This is the the MAGA world going. We're going to we're going to make dear leader happy. And I think some of the um, the Freedom Caucus members have been open about that, where they're like, "Yeah, this is all about payback." Um, <laughs> but I mean, even then, there are the members who are like, "Oh gosh, who was it? Let me see. Uh, I have it written down just for you." Uh, it was Bacon again, who basically who said, we can't have revenge impeachment. It's not good. It doesn't work in a marriage either. <laughs> it's 
a little bit more information into his relationship than I've ever wanted. <laughs> Is that why he's not <laughs> running for re-election? What kind of crazy stuff are you doing in your house, man? Like, well, you're just making text mixes some of year, dude. I don't know if you've been looking at some of the Republican leadership people around the country. I mean, you look at the couple in Florida. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of repression on that side of the aisle. I guess um, the the major question. So the the reason this is an inquiry and the reason they're pushing a lot of this forward uh, is the Republicans are saying, look, the the White House is basically clammed up and they're not giving us what we're asking for. Well, what they're asking for is they want to interview every single member of the Biden family, every single member of the White House staff, all of the campaign staff, anybody who worked for the vice president. I mean, like it is such a broad, it is, it is an inquiry in search of an investigation for an impeachment Right, is basically what it is. And there's nothing because they don't have anything. They're looking for something. And at some point you just have to be like, this isn't a legitimate impeachment and until you guys want to actually vote on an impeachment yeah. like this is a waste of our time no it's a fishing so i wonder like it's a fishing I wonder if this is going to end up in court right because you could you could take this to court and just be like well they voted on an inquiry there's nothing in the constitution about it, an impeachment inquiry it pretty much you know lines out what an impeachment is and how the process works and that's not what they're following yeah we, we don't have the evidence yet but it's there. And that, that falls under this, this belief culture. You know, they've sold people on the idea that they're, we've got the evidence and they don't. Because if they had it, guess what? <laughs> they would have impeached him already. Yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, I think there, one of the members said something about how, um, like, oh, my God, have you seen some of the stuff that they found out? Like, Joe Biden said that he wasn't taking any money, for, money from Hunter Biden. And it's like, well... He said he wasn't taking any money from China through an intermediary. Now, he did buy his son a truck and it paid him back, you know, the bank of dad, right? And um, and so there are all of these checks that, that Hunter Biden wrote to pay his dad back for this 2018 pickup when Biden wasn't even in office. And it's just so, they're so desperate that they're searching through old records you know, trying to find stuff they've already gone through and yeah. already released, hoping they can find something else that they or another way of framing it or you know whatever. It's just there's nothing there. No, there's the and you've known that there was nothing there from the beginning. And this is what I I said from the start. I'm not going to pay a lot of attention to it because if they had evidence, they would have moved on it. Uh, this is clearly just a fishing expedition. Um, and because if there were a straight line from from Hunter Biden doing whatever he was doing to to Joe Biden. They'd be all over this, and and I I know I know Joe Biden isn't that stupid to get himself in the middle of that. Um, and I would say it's not even a fishing expedition. It's it's the drive to the the service <laughs> station to get the bait for the fishing expedition. Like this, yeah. Okay. Like it's so many steps ahead. Like it's not even like you you haven't even gotten the beer yet, right? Like for the fishing expedition, <laughs> how far ahead this is. Yeah, well, the only beer they've got is non-alcoholic. Yeah, I, I get you. Uh, but here's the thing. I've got people who are saying, you know, Joe Biden's going to jail. And, and and I'm looking around. The only people who seem to maybe going to jail are, well, Rudy. I mean, Rudy. Rudy, a guy who, how how far has this guy fallen from America's mayor, from the top, you know, cop prosecutor to now? Probably, at least he fears, 
going to spend the rest of his life in jail after the uh, the, the laptop thing. Um, thoughts? So I didn't think that Rudy, I didn't, I honestly wasn't sure if Rudy was actually going to go to jail, but the more that this is unfolding and, um, you know, the poorer that Rudy gets, <laughs> you know, the, they basically put a lien on his Palm Beach house. Like there's, there, he can't pay his lawyers and Rudy, I, I think you're right. Like, I think there, he's never going to be able to actually pay for any of the restitution for any of the things that he's found guilty of. And so I think there's, there may not be another option other than throw the dude in jail. And that would be such poetic justice that, cause I, I don't think Trump spends a day in jail and I've got a lot of people who are saying, no, you're wrong. He's going to be in pinstripes. He's going to be in an orange jumpsuit. I'm going, I, I just don't see it. Somebody's going to go to jail. And I think Rudy's part of it. And I found it interesting that his lawyer, his own lawyer is saying, you know, he never shuts up. Uh, what was the quote? My quiet client, as you saw last night, likes to talk a lot. Unfortunately, yeah, the guy never shuts up, and that's what a little, uh, a, a little, you know, a little lubricant will do for you. There was a couple of times in the trial where, um, and it wasn't just when he was interviewing Shamos; it was when he was doing his opening, when he was talking to the judge. Like several moments throughout the course of the the trial where Rudy's lawyer seemed like he maybe wasn't actually working for Rudy anymore. And I was like, what is happening? This is, this is really not good for you. And I don't know if it's because he, you know, again, like can't pay his lawyers or, you know, if his lawyer's basically just phoning it in at this point. Well, um, that's a question maybe- for me. That's a question that I have. Who is paying his lawyers? And is it, as we've seen, you know, some other people say that, you know, when the Trump, Trump world was paying the legal fees, they weren't really, you know, worried about the, the, the client that they were supposed to represent as opposed to the client that was paying them to represent the client that they weren't really representing. Could that be part of this? Well, Cassidy Hutchinson went into some great detail about what happened between her and her Trump lawyer. And um, that was all paid for, not directly from Trump, of course, but through some kind of like legal fund. I don't even know if it was a nonprofit or a super PAC or what it was. And I don't think she knew either. But, um, you know, all of the, the stuff that Rudy's had to do has been up to his own cash. And so he's had, I think it was like two or three attorneys who were working for him on another related case that dropped him because he couldn't pay their bills. And so, like, I don't know if this is one of those things where he is getting somebody to volunteer their time or, um, but I I don't think that this is as as a result of, you know, any money that Trump is spending because he's already kind of, you know, said, well, I'm going to host this fundraiser for you. And I don't know how much they raise, but I guarantee you it's not the millions of dollars that he needs to pay off the bills that he's already got and the bills that he's got coming. So does he at some point, you know, become indigent and end up with a public aid defense attorney? Does he end up with with a public defender? You know, I kind of wondered that because, I mean, especially after all those other people quit. um, I did a story though, a couple of, God, what was it? It seems so long ago, but I think it was just a couple of months ago where his fiance showed up with like a pretty expensive looking rock on her finger. And it's like, you just had a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago for legal fees. Did you just spin that on a ring? <laughs> Might as well. You probably don't have a lot of time left. Uh, and speaking of going to jail, 
I, I see George Santos is is making the rounds. Uh, you know, with 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 a nice uh, with a, uh, did a did a little little purse toting around. He did like some interview with somebody, and there were pictures taken of him, and he had like this little box purse looking thing, and that's what everybody else was talking about. I was very excited about like the the blue velvet double breasted jacket he was wearing, because I feel like my fashion is sort of like a gay man, you know, like especially <laughs> if there's glitter involved. Um, but I am like, oh, I would totally wear that because then you could just sort of like pet your sleeve all day and be like, mm, this is lovely. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, I don't want to. I don't you spend all day feeling that. yourself up over it. Okay, I get it. I get it. True. We in high school, I used to wear clothes that were based off of touch, and I used to call them feel me shirts because I could walk around and be like, oh, oh, feel me, feel me. That that is who I used to be as a child. Okay. Um, but George, but George Santos. Has, um, I don't know if you noticed, but he has become like the biggest ticket on the internet where he's making like $100,000 a week now off of cameo appearances, including from some Democratic members of Congress. They're using him to mock other Republicans in Congress. <laughs> and I mean, I don't, I, if that's how he makes his living and if he can do that from prison, then good on you george or and, whatever your name is and maybe he'll get a reality show of his own that you know I, so new york passed this thing this week that um the uh new york supreme court said that the democrats are allowed to change the um the maps for um the election so they can redecide the congressional you know basically there's going to be a bunch of congressional races that are up for grabs now that weren't necessarily before right so it George Santos actually tweeted that out and he was like, yeah, there's probably going to be six Republicans. They're going to have to join me on cameo trying to make some money. And I thought, man, instead of housewives, like house members of New York, you know, and that have like all the ex members basically like, you know, arguing and, and bickering with each other and drinking with Rudy Giuliani and, and being sad, pathetic old men. I mean, it's basically the same as the housewives, but with worse fashion. I, I can't say that I would watch it, but I, I'm sure there's someone out there who would be paying attention to that. And maybe they could all do it from a prison cell, of which I still don't think, you know, Trump is going to be part of, even though I'm told that a judge uh, has made it clear that, that Trump could be put in prison. Is that right? Yes. That was like the highlight of the week where uh, basically Judge Tanya Chutkin said, look, you're not above the law whenever it comes to crimes or punishment. And that is is basically what Trump is, is appealing to the Supreme Court. where he's, he's saying, no, I have this presidential immunity. I am above the law. Um, and, I, you know, nobody really thinks that it's actually going to work, but that's his argument. And so this will be that'll be a really fun case to kind of look at if the if the Supreme Court is going to shoot down this idea of, well, he's not necessarily above the law, but is he above punishment? We, we will see. And finally, I, I got to get your thoughts on uh, I saw Ann Coulter. And, <laughs> and I got to tell you, when when Ann Coulter is the, on the right side of an issue, um, there, there's I, I don't know, there's something wrong there. Uh, but she has. Uh, she has come out and, and said that, you know, the, the pro-life movement has gone from compassion for the child to cruelty to the mother and child. And, and I, I couldn't agree with her more. 
Uh, and and I'm not an Ann Coulter fan by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, like they say, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. And here here's here's this 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 nut. That's kind of the weird thing about Ann Coulter is ever since Donald Trump came around, um, she's sort of evolved into something completely different and has been more willing to attack Donald Trump and attack and attack the direction of the Republican Party. And when it comes to issues like what happened in Texas with the um, woman who basically was going to watch her her fetus either die before birth or be born and die a painful, excruciating death in front of her, you know the the Supreme Court in the state basically said, "Look, you're you didn't really make a case that this could um, your doctor didn't make a case that this could kill you as well." And what was interesting in their decision, though, is that they also wrote that that decisions like this should not be in the hands of the judiciary or the legislature either. It was a very bizarre kind of um, case where they were sort of all over the place. And I, you have to wonder, like, is this necessarily about, you know, did the doctor fail to make the case enough for this court case? Or is it just that... Um, you know, the, the Supreme Court of Texas was trying to weasel their way out of, of a difficult decision that would probably pack off their attorney general. Well, but this is right. I mean, this should not be something that is de- decided by a bunch of a uh, bunch of guys in, in a legislature or on a court or any of this. This is I, I, none of their business. And yet they still blocked her from being able to you know, abort the fetus. And that's the thing that gets me as well. If they're going to take this position that it shouldn't be ours, don't you err on the side of, of, of extreme caution as opposed to, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with, with, with how they did this and why they did it, but also the outcome. Absolutely. And I think too, because this has now been advertised or, or, um, you know, promoted that she sought an abortion out of state. You know, part of the Texas law is about, you know, these whole bounty hunters being able to try and come and arrest people. And, um, you know, are they going to charge her? Um, Are they going to try and charge, you know, an out-of-state doctor? Like, there are all kinds of very strange laws that have been passed through a bunch of these red state legislatures, and none of them have really been tested in the courts. And this is actually a case where it may very well end up before the Supreme Court, and they're going to have to say, they're going to have to choose who dies. Is it, you know, are you going to die or, um, you know, is it okay to abort the fetus or are you both going to die? How about we go after the legislature? Right. Crazy, 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 crazy times we're in. And look, this kind of stuff is not just not just Texas. Uh, We're seeing this kind of stuff ending up in red states across the country. And and this is the thing that people like Ann Coulter. This was predictable. And and maybe you'll come with me on this little journey. But, you know, I've been saying for probably all 18 years of doing this show that the Republicans want to overturn Roe. They want women uh, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, blacks in the field, gays in the closet. This is the goal. So why would any of those groups ever, ever, ever vote for a Republican knowing that that's where they want to take it? And the thing that gets me is the people like Coulter and other women uh, on the right are, oh, I didn't I didn't know. Oh, this is too bad. This is too much. You knew this is what they were going to do. That's the thing is I feel like this is something that the Democrats and the liberals have been talking about for a really long time, that this is not about 
um, abortion. This is about controlling women. And every time I feel like we've made that case, Republicans are like, oh, you're being hysterical. And they downplay this idea that that's what it was really about. Now that they're, that moment has presented itself and there is actual evidence of that, now they're sort of stuck in this position where they're like, oh, crap, we thought this was, you know, not something that would really happen. Yep. And now it is. And so they're having to figure out, like, what do we do? What do we do? And now so much of the population, people who are, you know, avidly pro-life are finding out that, no, it turns out if you believe that you that women deserve to make their own choices, that means you're you're pro-choice. You personally might be pro-life in your decision. But if you're if you think that it shouldn't be pushed on someone else, I hate to inform you, but that means you're you're part of the tribe now. There you go. Uh, as always, Sarah, appreciate the time. I wish you the happiest of holidays. Uh, we will see you in the new year. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Have an awesome holiday. All of the holidays, every one of them. There Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, and New Year. There you go. Thanks so much. Uh, our good friend Sarah Burris. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. If you miss any portion of the program, make sure you grab the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. You'll find ours back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1995. That was the day machinists at Boeing ended their 69-day strike. 33,000 workers won increased pay and health benefits. They also won job protections against subcontracting. Contractual clauses against subcontracting were important, especially given the fact that NAFTA had just been passed two years earlier. The contract specified that the union be given three months' notice regarding any plans to subcontract out work. It also incentivized keeping work in-house by calling for increased benefits to laid-off workers and mandatory retraining and re-employment of workers displaced by subcontracting. These provisions came after IAM members rejected two previous contract offers. They were furious at the initial demands for concessions, even as Boeing executives were awarded multi-million dollar stock options. At the time, the IAM and its members lauded this as a total victory. For a few years, Boeing abided by the contract they signed. Subsequently, Boeing bosses have routinely violated their agreements. Many of these provisions were lost in the 2002 contract and then recaptured in 2008. But the next contract negotiations witnessed a renewed fight for job security. Over the past two decades, Boeing workers have seen massive layoffs, subcontracting, pension freezes and phase-outs, and relocation of their work. All while the company rakes in billions of dollars in profits, gets lucrative tax breaks and subsidies, and has close to 5,000 back orders for planes. Subcontracting clauses are important but can only work when they are enforced. Victories like the winning strike in 1995 can serve as a reminder for workers today that if they stand together in solidarity, they can win better wages, hours, and conditions at the bargaining table. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, therixsmithshow.com. So, reminder, Saturday, December 16th, Uh, The good folks at the Working People's Podcast are going to be hosting a 12-hour live stream uh, at their website. Uh, And this this live stream is going to be a fundraiser. And as we talked about the other day, this fundraiser is going to be uh, designed to help the folks in East Palestine. 
and and we've talked about this before, uh, the fact that our news media, well, they've kind of forgotten all about the folks in East Palestine. Uh, they've completely forgotten about uh, these these folks. And sadly, what has to happen is uh, individuals like like Maximilian Alvarez, um, they are uh, they are out there going, hey, we haven't forgotten. Uh, we need to we need to step forward. And you know the you know the good folks there at the the Working People's Podcast, uh, they are going to do this live stream. And the hope the hope is that you know, raise some money, uh, move in a direction to make Christmas brighter and happier. Uh, for the, the families in East Palestine. Uh, you can find this at their website, um, the Working Pod website, the Real News Network's website, uh, therealnews.com. They're going to be, I guess, posting this as part of, of uh, not as a part of the Real News, but as part of the podcast. So where you can donate, you can chip in, you can help out, uh, you can show the world that we still care about each other. Uh, I will be doing part of the live stream with the folks uh, at the Working People's Podcast. Uh, and, and look, you know, this this to me is another one of those examples of, of corporate greed, of, um, you know, slap a little little window dressing, uh, make, some, make some nice, and then leave the real external costs on the backs of individuals, on the backs of the taxpayers. You know, we talked with... Uh, with with one of the residents from East Palestine, and it was one of those those moments where you go, how is it possible that we've allowed this this to happen? How is it that we've allowed the uh, the moneyed interests to get away with the stuff that they've gotten away with? And you heard the story from from Chris Albright, uh, who was talking. Look, he's got health issues. There are people, you know, it, you know, his friends and neighbors and family. They've got health issues. There's there's stuff going on, and well, uh, Norfolk Southern, the the rail company, they're kind of just well, they're they I guess doing the minimum that they have to do. I, I guess they did build a park. Yeah, you know, I guess they spent twenty five million dollars building a nice park, uh, which I don't know is all that great if you can't breathe. Uh, how much running around you're going to do? But you know. This is one of those things where you go, you know, just in time for the holidays, uh, there's an opportunity to reach out to a community to help them to get through this tough time. And, and I'm all on, I'm all in favor, all in favor of helping them out. And we're going to do our best uh, to do just that. The real is the website uh, under the podcast heading. Uh, you will find the Working People's Podcast, which is where they will be streaming also from, I guess, their YouTube channel. Uh, the Working People's Pod you, you, YouTube channel, uh, the live stream. And, and like I said, a way to donate. All the money going to go to the people in the community who have kids to make sure that those children have a happy, merry Christmas and a holiday season that, that can be remembered uh, and remembered positively. So good on them. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick, at thericksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Grab the podcast, as always. Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. Email Rick at Rick at the Ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Our 
this day in labor history, the year was 1852. That was the day socialist leader Daniel de Leon was born in Curacao to Dutch Jewish parents. As a young man, he traveled Europe. He settled in New York City and earned a law degree from Columbia University in 1878. De Leon joined the Socialist Labor Party in 1890 and became the editor of its newspaper, The People. His book, Socialist Landmarks, consisting of a series of lectures, became wildly popular. These lectures included Reform or Revolution, What Means This Strike, The Burning Question of Trade Unionism, and Socialist Reconstruction of Society. De Leon warned of reforms under capitalism as illusory. He argued for revolutionary socialism and soon assumed leadership of the Socialist Labor Party. As a former member of the Knights of Labor, he was critical of the American labor movement, often referring to the AFL as the American separation of labor for its business unionism and refusal to organize any but the most highly skilled white craft workers. De Leon also took a strong stand against racism in the socialist movement, stating, quote, why should a truly socialist organization of whites not take in Negro members, but organize these in separate bodies? On account of outside prejudice, then the body is not truly socialist. De Leon was among the socialist leaders at the founding 1905 Conference of the Industrial Workers of the World. By 1908, he and others looked to effect social change through the Socialist Party and existing trade union movement. This put them at odds with the direct action perspective of the IWW. Many left the IWW at this point, including De Leon and socialist leader Eugene V. Debs. When he died in 1914, more than 30,000 turned out for his funeral. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.